The global north's insatiable appetite for the latest fashion, coupled with gargantuan marketing budgets to continue to promote that kind of consumption, has contributed to massive amounts of clothing waste and pollution. The ripple effect has greatly impacted countries in the global south. I'm Rebecca Burgess, the founder of a California-based nonprofit called Fibershed. Learn more on the Weaving Voices podcast, a Whetstone Radio Collective podcast. Listen and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Hello, fellow sapiens. I'm Chip Galwell. I'm Esteban Gomez. I'm Jen Shannon. I'm Aura. And I'm Yuli. And we are a new generation of anthropologists and archaeologists who love to investigate what makes us human. Over the years, we've gone to space to find out whether it's a human place. Three, two, one, and liftoff. And we've wondered why some people eat bugs. It's the black ants that when they die, they actually release citric acid. And others don't. Ugh. (laughs) (laughs) And we've learned how reconnecting with ancestors, from uncovering sunken slave ships to identifying hidden burial grounds, are human acts of reclamation. That was according to the wishes of the descendant community. We are Sapiens, a podcast for everything human. And we can't wait to answer your questions about the human experience. Please subscribe now, wherever you're listening to this show, and check us out at sapiens.org. Hey everyone, I'm Jesse Sparks, host of the new podcast, The One Recipe, from the team behind The Splendid Table. This pod is all about that one recipe that you lean on. The one you share with friends, the one you make when you need a little love, and the one you know will work every single time. Every week, I talk with chefs and gifted cooks from all over the world about their one and the story behind it. We're here to help you build your kitchen library one dish at a time. Follow the one recipe wherever you get your podcasts. My name is Shiloh Maples. I'm Turtle Clan. I'm Anishinaabe. I'm a citizen of the Little River Band of Ottawa. I also belong to the Ojibwe people of Swan Creek and Black River. I am speaking to you from my homelands here in the Great Lakes. Welcome to Spirit Plate. In this space, we will talk about indigenous foodways as means of resistance, resilience, and revitalization. Within this growing indigenous food movement, there is an incredible story of reclamation and intertribal solidarity, powerful yet untold examples of natives resisting and thriving. The stories of our foodways are one of the greatest testaments of indigenous brilliance and our beauty of spirit. But before we can talk about indigenous people's food traditions and contemporary efforts to revitalize their food systems, we have to understand the history of disruption that makes this work necessary. Today, I'm speaking with one of my dearest mentors, Mohawk seed keeper and farmer, Rowan White, to talk about our relationships to land and food, upholding our responsibilities to our kin, and developing a new lexicon to talk about the food system. Over the years, she has influenced my own thinking on these topics, so I've invited her to share some of her wisdom with us. So before we start the interview, could you please introduce yourself any way that you would like? Sure. Sego, Segwego, Ganyat the Hawaiungyats. Greetings. My name's Rowan White. I am the founder of both Sierra Seeds and Indigenous Seakeepers Network. 
And I'm from a small community of Akwesasne, which is a Mohawk community right on the New York Canadian border. I'm a seed keeper and a land steward and a storyteller and a mother. And yeah, just grateful to be a part of a thriving food sovereignty movement. Great. Thank you. So you already started describing a little bit for us, Rowan, a little bit about where the Akwesasne community is, but could you provide us a little bit more context? Like, what's the landscape like at Akwesasne? So in our homelands, we actually have a unique situation where the border kind of crossed us. So our native community is half in Canada and half in the United States, straddling the St. Lawrence River. My family has lived there since the beginning of <laughs> of the reservation being a thing, right? So Mohawk people traditionally would have moved seasonally on the land from a place like Akwesasne, where it's very conducive to fishing and trapping and hunting. There's an amazing confluence of tributaries of different rivers that all convene at this great mouth of a river. And then we would move downstate for more fertile agricultural lands. This land has been in my blood and my bones for many, many generations. So many stories of my ancestors tending the land and rowing boats across the river and making basketry from the black ash and the number of different trees in the the region. And so it's just a really beautiful place. Sounds like it. I was wondering if you'd be willing to share one of the earliest stories of your homeland or some of your foods that you carry. You know, actually, some of my earliest memories from home are actually related to my great-grandma, Rena, and my great-grandpa, Alex, and their homestead. So I have, like, these amazing memories of that old house and the generosity that was extended there by my great-grandma, Rena. She was renowned in the community for growing these amazing gardens, just an incredibly generous human. We always kind of laugh in my household and in my family because... My parents, my mom and my dad, aren't necessarily interested in growing gardens or having their hands on the earth. From when I was a young girl, I always wanted to have my hands on the earth and grow gardens and be outside. And and they always said that it was linked back to not only my grandma Rena, but her mother, my great-great-grandma Anna Jacobs, who also was just known in the community for their incredible green thumbs and for their gardens. And so... I feel as though the seed of inspiration for my current work in food and seed sovereignty really extends back to that ancestral brilliance from those immediate ancestors and my bloodlines. And so some of the foods and seeds that I now carry in my bundle, while they weren't handed down to me directly from my grandparents or great-grandparents or parents, largely because of the impact and influence of residential boarding schools and what that did to really sever the connection in my immediate family to the land. In my bundle are seeds of corn and beans and squash and tobacco and other Haudenosaunee ancestral heritage seeds that I imagine were probably growing in gardens like my great-great-grandma Anna Jacobs or my great-grandma Rena, but they weren't able to hand them down to me directly. But through my apprenticeship with heritage seeds and through the generosity of many foresighted elders in my community, those seeds have found their way back into our family's bundles. And so I'm really grateful that I get to be one of many who's reconnected to those sacred foods. And my life work is animated by caring for them and making sure that they're handed down in a good way to my children and grandchildren. 
I'm wondering if you have any stories from your community or from like the larger Mohawk community, any cultural stories around these foods that have really shaped your relationship to these particular foods? Like you mentioned the corn, beans, squash. Are there any cultural stories that have really influenced that relationship to those foods? The beautiful thing, and I learned this as I continued along the path of caring for these seeds, is that we're lineal descendants of our seeds, right? So these seeds, the corn, beans, and squash, as I had mentioned, but many, many other plants, both cultivated and non-cultivated, have a beautiful seat and figure beautifully into our creation stories and many of our cosmological stories. And so as I began to carry the bundle of seeds again and know what it meant to be a seed keeper in my full capacity, I began to notice that, oh, the ceremonial cycle and the stories that come with those ceremonies and the stories that are held in our cultural lifeways as Mohawk people, they are all a part of the foods all play a significant role in those ceremonies and in those stories. Mm-hmm. And so in particular, like in our creation story, it's really beautiful because our original ancestor was a woman who came to this place she came from a place called Sky World and ended up landing upon the back of a turtle, which is why we now call this continent Turtle Island. And she came not only clutching plants from the other world, so wild plants and seeds in her hand. And when she arrived on Turtle Island, she began to sing the world awake and began to sow those wild seeds upon the back of the turtle. But in the bigger story of her emergence into this particular world and then eventually giving birth to a daughter and then eventually that daughter giving birth to the twins that would kind of move forward in this place and really set and cycle all of creation and all of the things that we live around, all of our relations. Those foods sprung from the body of original woman's daughter when she passed away in childbirth. And so the corn coming from her breasts and the beans from her hands and the squash from her belly button and the original potatoes and sunflowers from her legs and the strawberry from her heart and the tobacco from her mind. And so when you begin to see that these stories are actually a whole cosmological garden that help us to not only understand why these seeds and foods are so important and why we need to care for them, but also those stories and cosmologies actually safeguard and protect that biodiversity of seeds and foods that not only nourished our ancestors, but will nourish those yet to come. And so the beauty of that is recognizing the brilliance of our ancestors and the way in which they encoded those values to care for those who care for us, those foods and seeds who have never forgotten their responsibility to care for us the way that those get encoded into those stories. And that way it safeguards it through the generations for us to continue to care and to nurture them so that we can be those good future ancestors in that way. And I think in a lot of ways, the current cultural insanity is that so many people don't have those stories and therefore have not been handed down those values of understanding that we live in reciprocity with the world around us. And so the stories and the ceremonies help keep us not only accountable, but also invite us into an engaged reciprocal relationship with the world around us. And so for that, I'm really thankful. I'm really thankful to not only have seeds in my bundle, but also have stories and cultural teachings and ceremonies that help me to understand the bigness of the gift that they bestow onto me and my community. 
The broader food movement and scholars describe the food system in terms of the various points of human interaction with food as it moves through its life cycle. Agriculture, processing, marketing and distribution, and waste and recovery streams. It's a very mechanized and detached way of relating to food. For many indigenous communities across Turtle Island, though, the term food system does not reflect how they think about or relate to food or land. Each indigenous community has their own beautiful creation story, which places them in relationship to a particular place. These origin stories and other sacred stories hold within them our original instructions of what it means to be a human, our roles and responsibilities, and how to live in balance good relationship with all of the kin that we share this place with. Thank you for sharing that. For myself as an Anishinaabe person, how as I have relearned some of our history and stories and the role that wild rice has played in our people's journey to the Great Lakes region, and then seeing that mirrored in my life now in these times, you know, the role that our traditional foods have to bring me back to a home within myself. It's a really powerful thing, at least it has been for me to feel that mirrored in these times as well, to continue feeling that that legacy. You and I have had some previous conversations about not liking the term food system. Could you share why you've moved away from this language and what you've replaced it with? Yeah, absolutely. You know, I think a lot about as an Indigenous seed keeper and just as a culture worker, recognizing the importance of language and how we speak of things and how language can be either life-giving and helps us to tend possibility, or it can be very restrictive. And as a Mohawk woman, I actually speak the language of those who oppress my ancestors and who continue to oppress Indigenous peoples. I speak English. And English is a very constrictive language. It's very linear. It's very compartmentalized. And so I often call for this need for a new lexicon in this food waste work because people will say, oh, she does food systems work. And I say, Mm -hmm. food systems feel so sterile. It feels so Mm -hmm. compartmentalized. When I think of the work I do, the relationships I tend in the garden, in the work I do in the kitchen, the work we do in community, food systems is like the farthest way that I would Mm -hmm. think of describing my work. And so the invitation, I think, is for us to imagine new ways of speaking about this. So I've thought long and hard and engaged in conversations in community about this. And one way I like to describe my work is that we're cultivating relational foodways or kin-centric foodways, meaning that the kin, not only our human kin, but all of our kin, you know, plant, mineral, and otherwise, are centered. And so we have a very beautiful, decentralized way of nourishing ourselves. Because what we need to remember is that in any way that we nourish ourselves, you know, through in the gardens and farms, is that the Mm -hmm. humans are not the only beneficiary, right? That there Mm -hmm. are other kin that should be the beneficiary. And unfortunately, in the modern food system, which is, I would call it a food system, they have made it certain that the beneficiaries of that system are only humans, much to the detriment of soil health and water health and air quality. When we start to center our work as relational concentric foodways, we open up the doorway to so much possibility in this work, meaning that we recognize the importance of rehydrating and restoring and rekindling relationship with human and non-humans, 
we open up the door of possibility for us to build out landscapes of nourishment that help us to keep our agreements to each other and then also to our seeds and to the land in those sorts of ways. And so I think the invitation of the time is for us to think about indigenous words. Like there are words in our indigenous language that perhaps have a better way of describing this. But these are the words that I come up with in English. But I could imagine that perhaps into the future, as we continue to work on this intercultural collaboration of building out more relational food landscapes, that we would perhaps have some of those indigenous words that are normalized and used that can encapsulate bigger ideas than what English can carry. I often think about how, as I learn more about my own ancestral language of Anishinaabe Moen, this relational worldview is embedded throughout the language. I'm wondering, are there Mohawk words or concept that really ground you in your relationship to land and food? Yeah, I mean, there's so many. One is that some people will say, oh, you grow a three sisters garden or, you know, you grow this. But actually, our word for three sisters is actually dehego, which means our sustenance, right? It's recognizing that relationship that we have and that the gifts that they continue to give us, right? Recognizing not only our relationship to them, inherent in the word structure, but also the gifts that they give us and how we continue to acknowledge that. There are also, I think, cultural understandings around good mind, like our good mind teachings, and recognizing that part of our obligation to these seeds and to the land is always about our mindset and the way that we approach our work in a spirit of gratitude and in a spirit of receptivity. So much of the dominant colonial food system is in a relationship of extraction and exploitation and consumptiveness, consumerism. And when we hold concepts like good mind and relationality as it relates to my Haudenosaunee teachings, is that we recognize that actually so much of what we're doing in the garden and tending is actually giving back, is actually regenerative, it's renewable, it's restorative. It really just decenters our humanness and our own needs and recognizes that this is an opportunity for interspecies collaboration that will be mutually beneficial for all who are participating in this co-evolutionary dance in the garden. Are there other words or concepts that you feel like we needed a new lexicon for in this food work that we're involved with, this relational work? I feel as though the word economy and the root of it describes a much more multi-layered relationship and interface than what we associate it with right now, right? So Automatically, when we say the word economy, we think about capitalism, right? The current way in which economy expresses itself in our world, mm -hmm. right? There's this idea of like capitalist realism, which is like it's hard for us to understand how economy functions outside of capitalism in this modern time that we live in. But actually having conversations with Haudenosaunee elders like Mike Myers or others, John Mohawk was an incredible scholar. And looking at the economy of the woods and of the village and looking at the economy that our ancestral indigenous villages engaged in. And how are we reclaiming that? And how are we describing that economy in a way that understands that there can be ways in which we engage in an economy that doesn't harm what we love, that actually actively is a reflection of our values as indigenous peoples and is an economy of abundance, an economy of regeneration. 
I think it's just exploring what are the words that we use now and how are we reorienting them? If, if it's not a new word itself, how are we redefining or reimagining what that word can hold and what it means? I love how you express your relationship to land and food. It's always so just beautiful and I think puts into words things that I am trying to express myself. I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about your own journey and what brought you to seed keeping. I think at this point in my life, I can look back and I've been intentionally on this seed keeping path for 25 years, right? And, you know, I look back at pictures of my way younger self and I think, oh, the seeds of that were actually laying dormant, waiting to sprout with the right conditions and the right time. And so I feel really grateful that as a young woman at 17, that I arrived on a farm with the right people, the right questions and the right set of inspiration to really water and hydrate those seeds of remembrance that were in my blood and my bones already. And so I feel very grateful and forever indebted to those who really encouraged me that farming was a noble endeavor, that reconnecting with seed and food and land in meaningful ways was a catalyst for cultural revitalization, is a catalyst for intergenerational healing, and ultimately is the pathway in which I find my way home. Those seeds and foods, those Haudenosaunee corn beans and squash that I found gifted to me as a young woman when I began to ask what were the foods and seeds that fed my ancestors all those years ago, and those elders were entrusting me with these bundles, they became my teachers, those seeds, actually. They became my grandmas and my aunties and in this very unconventional rites of passage, and in a lot of ways helped me to understand my purpose here on this earth. And many of us, we all have different passions and purpose. And for some, it's seeds and food, and for some, it's other things. But I feel really grateful that very early on in my life, that was revealed to me and really opened up this wellspring of devotion and reverence for the life force that sits inside each seed. And really those seeds have grown me into the woman that I am now and continue to grow me. I have gratitude in my heart for the ways in which I ended up on a farm at 17, tending to heirloom tomato seeds. And those tomatoes were my first seed teachers. And they taught me that Tomatoes weren't just round and red, that they were a multicolored prism of different shapes and sizes and that those seeds had stories and lineages and lands they belonged to, you know. And so from there, there were so many side pathways of inquiry and inspiration that continued to lead me to the work that I do now with Indigenous Seed Keepers Network and on my own home farm at Sierra Seeds. And so there's just so many places where that multisensory memory that comes inside of each seed, like when we eat the corn and when we eat the beans and squash, they rehydrate these memories that are so compelling that we just have to continue to tend to them and follow them. The promises that I made 25 years ago that I would be one woman who didn't forget and that I would be a mother who had seeds to hand down to her children, that continues to be my North Star and continues to be the reason why I do this work. It's beautiful. What has seed keeping revealed about being a good human or relative? Seed keeping is such a beautiful practice because it's inevitably encouraging us in reciprocity, right? So as a seed keeper, I'm an apprentice to life cycles, to the ways in which a seed turns into a sprout and turns into a flowering plant and then fruiting plant into a seeding plant, which then eventually dies and goes back around again. And so 
as an apprentice to those life cycles, I have recognized that everything changes, right? That's the only constant. And in that, it just helps us to recognize the gifts that are constantly being given to us. I think so much in the dominant narrative and the dominant colonial cosmovision or worldview is that so much is taken for granted. Through seed keeping, it's an embodied prayer, I guess is the best way for me to say it, is embodied prayer to re-engage in a reciprocal relationship to those plant relatives. And a long time ago, our ancestors came into agreements with plants and those plants gave up some of their wildness to be in the gardens. Us as humans gave up a little of our wildness to tend to those gardens and to settle and to tend to those foods and seeds. And when we did that, we engaged in an agreement and a covenant to take care of each other. Those seeds and foods, and it's good to remember this, that if we ate today, if we had any food today, that those seeds never gave up on their promise to take care of us, right? They still continue to take care of us in every moment. Through the act of seed keeping, we can reweave ourselves into a relationship of care and to uphold our agreements to care for those plant relatives who never forgot to take care of us. No matter where you come from and where you descend from on the planet, we all descend from people who had those agreements and those relationships to seeds. And so seed keeping opens up that doorway to reweave ourselves into that relationship. But also, again, it enables us to reweave ourselves into that cosmological story, into that understanding of why we're here and who are we. Because what's been told to me by my elders is that the creation stories, they never ended. Like they continue to unfurl even into this moment. It gives us agency. It gives us a place to say, oh, I'm actually one weaver of many threads in this cosmological story that's unfolding in every moment. And so it gives us a place to engage and to relate and to store memory. I was wondering if you could speak to why is food sovereignty important to you personally? Food sovereignty is critical to myself as a person because it actually grew me into the person I am, right? My being in this food sovereignty movement helped me to understand so many things about myself and my relationship to community and my relationship to the collective. I ended up on an organic farm at 17. I was confused and saddened and grief-stricken by the way in which food ended up on our plates. The industrialization of a food system, the lack of care, the violence and harm in which it was coming to us was really unsettling. And it made me do a deep dive into where was the food coming from that ended up on my plate at a young age. You know, it was a very visceral thing that I was grappling with. In a lot of ways, as an Indigenous woman, there have been so many ways in which we've been traumatized, the way in which we carry the trauma of our ancestors, the ways in which our bodies just become the places where that trauma lives and resides and festers and stagnates and continues to harm us. As I've walked along this path, I've recognized that severing us as Indigenous peoples from the land and from our food was a very manufactured act to disempower us, to disconnect us from the source of our power, which is actually rooted in the land beneath our feet and our relationship to it. And so as an individual Mohawk woman, to be able to restore my connection to those relationships and to that web of kin who nourishes me every day and to be able to have an embodied understanding of that is a way of telling the world past, present, and future that we're not a conquered people. And it helps me to heal. 
It helps me to reclaim my agency and my voice in a world where even as a modern day person, Indigenous peoples are still oppressed and are still erased and are still excluded from so many conversations. That's why food sovereignty is so important to me as a, as a Mohawk woman now. It gives me a way to, to reclaim my power, my true power, which resides in the land and which resides in that mycelial network of relationships. And it helps me to be one of many who are resisting the current capitalist colonial paradigm. And it helps me to reseed imaginations of what's possible in the future and gives me hope in the face of despair for the ways in which we can seed that beautiful future. So it becomes that embodied act of hope. It's that one way in which I can say, well, if nothing else, I'll just keep tending these seeds and be that ancestor who didn't forget. That's what it means to me. And I know it has a bigger meaning for the collective, but I think there's like a mirrored aspect of what it means for me as an individual and the way in which that same story could be true for the collective as well. Certainly. I think sometimes it seems like people conflate or confuse sovereignty with self-reliance. When I say self-reliance, I mean, you know, a state of providing for all of your own needs, not relying on external sources. I'd love to hear what you think about that. Well, yeah, I think in some ways, this idea of like self-reliance or self-sustainability, and, you know, there's all kinds of those terms littered all around, even in organic agriculture. I think the colonial myth of individualism perpetuates that because it claims that we can be responsible for feeding and nourishing ourselves all by ourselves. So the invitation is to think about, well, what's your concept of self? And when I think about myself, it's a much bigger web, a network of human and non-human kin that help me to be the human that I am today. I think the call of the times is to think about what is sustainability that it's not about a collection of individuals, but it's the way in which we work together and celebrating our interdependence and celebrating the ways in which we all work towards that future landscape of nourishment. And so, yeah, I push back a lot on those like words of mm -hmm. like self-sustainability because it's like, well, that's not possible. You alone <laughs> are not growing your garden. In fact, what's important to think about is how is that garden growing you? You do the work and you provide the opportunity, but the corn is growing herself, right? She's growing herself in that fertile soil. So I think it's really important for us to think about sort of those cultural concepts of self and the ways in which we are embodying and celebrating our interdependence in the way in which we build out and cultivate our food landscapes into the future. So you were describing when we first started talking, your ancestral homeland, the region that it resides in closer to the East Coast, but you've been farming and living in California for several years now. I'm wondering what wisdom from your homeland you keep held in your body. Yeah, I've been living here in the Sierra Foothills for 15 years now, which I would have never imagined 15 years ago. But I've grown deeply in love with this land that holds us and nourishes us. And I am reminded that the wisdom of my ancestors does reside in the earth of my body. The way in which I relate to the seasonal cycles, the way in which I continue to uphold and honor the ways in which our ceremonies mirror the seasonal cycles, the way in which each morning is greeted with the words before all else, our Thanksgiving address, and a way in which I am acknowledging my relationship to the kin all around me. That is something that, regardless of where I live, remains in the earth of my body. And so I think in some ways, living far away from my Indigenous community has strengthened that understanding. 
that ancestral brilliance lives in our bodies just as much as it lives in the earth beneath our feet. And interesting is that I think we all live in diaspora in some way in this time where even if we do live on our ancestral homelands, there's a lot of ways in which we still need to find our way home, like to Mm -hmm. these deeper cultural understandings. And so in some ways, anchoring to the wisdom that resides in the earth of my body, it gives me a resilience because wherever I go, it's still there. Food helps us with that because food actually goes directly into our bodies, right? The foods, we imbibe them and they bring their wisdom into all the different cells in, in our body and remind us it's a real blessing. I'm wondering what have the Sierra Nevadas taught you? Yeah, the Sierra Nevada foothills have given me such a deep appreciation for the blessing of rain. Because we live in a wet and dry season as opposed to like more of a four seasons, although we have many seasons. There's a a multitude of different seasons inside of the wet and dry. We go five, six, seven months without any rain falling from the sky. Gives me such a deep, deep gratitude for the life-giving gift of water. And as someone who originally descends from a place where there is so much water, it's like a swamp. To be in a place where for many, many months of the year, we, we don't have that has really given me a lot of gratitude for that. And then also living in the Sierra Foothills has taught me so much about a different kind of agriculture. I grew up learning about the annual agriculture of my people, right? Like corn, beans, and squash and the annual agriculture. But being out here from the homelands of the Nisanan and the Maidu and the Paiute and the Washo and many other peoples who didn't have an annual agriculture of you know seeds like corn, beans, and squash, but they had this polyculture that was with the forest, whether it was the acorns from the oak trees or the pine nuts from the pinyon tree. It was such a different kind of agriculture, but it was still an agriculture. Like they were still very much in this reciprocal dynamic relationship with the land. And it actually got me to learn more about that perennial forest agriculture that my Haudenosaunee people engaged in too, that that's something that many indigenous peoples engage with, whether it's the forest or the prairie or the wetlands, that there is also a way in which we have a relationship and an influence on these quote-unquote wild systems. So the Sierra Foothills have taught me so much about that and definitely have apprenticed myself to the oak trees. And also to fire, to my relationship to fire and the way in which fire is such a critical part of the ecosystem here. And, you know, living in a time where we've had fire suppression for over 100 years and the cultural burning was severed because of the colonial influence to recognize that fire can be one of the most destructive forces, but also can be one of the most nutritive and amazing and nourishing forces too if we engage with fire as friend and not foe. And so learning that and working with my husband and with the land here on restoring fire in a healthy way to the ecosystem in the way of cultural prescribed burns. And so it's been beautiful to learn more about that beautiful way of living on the land here. I think there are a lot of people who desire a similar, more intimate connection to food and land, like what you've described here today. What would you offer for this time when so many people have lost or forgotten this connection? I think the most important thing for us to remember is that it's never too late. It's never too late to find our way home. The seeds of memory and the seeds of belonging and the seeds of relationship and the seeds of care they do reside in the earth of our bodies. 
Those agreements that the plants made with our relatives a long time ago, they run like wild rivers in our blood and our bones. And so I think it's really important for us to have patience with ourselves for recognizing that all of us are somehow touched or somehow impacted by the grief of disconnection of these times, of the cultural insanity of these times. And that sometimes it might only be just finding one seed of your ancestors and beginning to tend to it and sing to it and listen to those plants as a way to begin to rehydrate that part of yourself. I think the biggest lesson for me along this path is recognizing the importance of loving, of love in our work. When I began to engage with the seeds and the land work in the spirit of love and in the spirit of connection and relationship, that brought a greater depth of purpose into my life. And so when I was beginning to receive my first ancestral seed bundle, you know, 25 plus years ago, I guess I didn't realize at that point how much I missed that. When I was younger, I didn't understand that I missed that connection to seed and food in that way. I probably knew it underneath the surface, but I wasn't aware of it. And so when I began to realize that, oh, like my parents didn't hand down seeds to me that should have been my birthright, that that's something that was cultural and should have been handed down and the knowledge and the cultural memory of that. There was a grief and there was a sadness and there was an anger and there was a whole spectrum of emotion that came with that, that I think a lot of us feel. A lot of us feel and yearn to belong. A lot of us yearn to have a greater sense of meaning in the way that we engage in the world. Food and seed and the, the multi-sensory gifts that they give us has been an incredible way to heal and to remember. And so that is there for all of us because we all eat, right? So we all have an opportunity to engage with an ancestral food and tap into the ancestral wisdom that's carried inside of those seeds. Because inside those seeds are prayers from people long ago prayed that us, generations later, wouldn't be hungry, who prayed for us that we would have good clean water to drink and good air to breathe. There's always this invitation, and that's the important thing to remember, is that there's always this invitation at any one point to re-engage that relationship and to say, I didn't forget you. You give gifts to me every day to these plants and to re-engage that relationship. Even if you just have like a little pot on your deck, or if you can't, if you really don't have the ability to, to tend to land and to seed, what are the ways in which you can uplift the food and seed sovereignty movement work in that literacy of that, in your art or in your songs or in articles that you write or whatever it is. And so I think there's always an opportunity. So there's a place for all of us in this movement. And I think we have to remember that this is a people's movement. There's something that we're striving towards in the future, and it won't be what it could be unless we're all a part of it because we all eat. I just hope that everybody has an opportunity to find their way home through food and seed in small and big ways and, and to listen to what those plants have to teach us. All right, Rowan, last question. If I invite you to a feast honoring all of our relations, what are you bringing and why? Oh, I love that question. I would bring to that feast a beautiful pot of corn soup and it would have all kinds of vegetables. I make my corn soup in a very different way than my ancestors did. You know, they just were very much like, you know, meat and hominy corn and maybe a rutabaga thrown in or something. But like, I love to make my corn soup with 
ancestral corn that we've grown and washed in the wood ash and soaked and, and boiled with some venison or some meat that we've raised on the farm. And then like any manner of vegetables and herbs from that particular season that we're making it in that helps it to be the medicine of that particular time. So yeah, I would bring a really nourishing pot of farm corn soup <laughs> to nourish us all. <laughs> Sounds delightful. Well, miigwech for being such a generous teacher. And thank you for taking the time during your sabbatical to join me in this conversation. Yeah, my pleasure. The Spirit Plate Podcast is an honoring of all the Indigenous communities across Turtle Island who are working to preserve and revitalize their ancestral foodways. In this space, we will talk about Indigenous foodways as means of resistance, resilience, and revitalization. Thank you for listening to Landscape of Relations. Episode 2 of Spirit Plate. We hope you enjoyed it. A big thank you to Rowan White, Mohawk seed keeper, farmer, and organizer. You can follow Rowan and her seed work at sierraseeds.org. That is S-I-E-R-R-A-S-E-E-D-S.org. You can subscribe to Spirit Plate anywhere you would get your podcasts, and we'll be back next week with Shelly Buffalo, the Squawky Seed Keeper, to talk about the power of reconnecting to ancestral foods and her experiences of revitalizing heritage seeds. Throughout Season 1, we'll discuss some of the social, political, and historical reasons why the Indigenous food sovereignty movement is necessary. A critical understanding of the journey that led us here needs to become a more common understanding before American society can give life to a new, more equitable food system. A more equitable food system requires narrative equity. Indigenous people must get to define their own relationship to land and food and tell the stories of their work themselves. Through interviews with seed keepers, chefs, farmers, and community members, this podcast will share what food justice and sovereignty looks like for Indigenous peoples across Turtle Island. As your host, I'm inviting you to the table and into a deeper conversation. I hope that you'll be inspired to think about your own connection to place and how this has influenced your relationships to food. I also hope you'll feel moved to build genuine relationships with the original caretakers of the place you reside and consider how you can stand in solidarity with their communities. If you would like to learn which Indigenous communities' homeland you reside upon, visit native-land.ca. That is N-A-T- ive-land.ca Spirit Plate is part of the Whetstone Radio Collective. Thank you to the Spirit Plate team, producer and music composer Kat Yang, audio editor Kat Salinas, researcher Giselle Kennedy-Lord, and intern Indigo Clarkson. I'd also like to thank Whetstone founder Stephen Satterfield, Whetstone Radio Collective Executive Producer Celine Glassier, Sound Engineer and Music Designer Max Cuddlechuck, Associate Producer Quentin LeBeau, and Sound Intern Simon Lavender. You can learn more about this podcast at whetstoneradio.com, at Instagram and Twitter at Whetstone Radio, and subscribe to our YouTube channel, Whetstone Radio Collective, for more podcast video content. You can learn more about all things happening at Whetstone at whetstonemedia.com. Until next time, bye-bye.